Hi, this is Tutibulus from the Dungeon Place podcast, and uh, you're listening to the Massacast with uh, Unspeakable Axe. Reminder, this is a podcast for adults 18 or older, so if you're not 18 or older, go tell your mother she loves you. I know what you're thinking. Uh, I've got all this money, and I don't know what to do with it. In this economy, who doesn't have tons of cash just laying around? Here's what you can do. You can go to Massacast.com, and on the right-hand side, you'll see the little... You know, donation section. Just click, uh, click there, and it'll take you to the donation page. And via PayPal, you can donate whatever amount of cash you have laying around. I'm sure, you've got lots of it. This episode, uh, I'm really happy about the, how this turned out. This is uh, another example of a friend saying, "You got to interview this person. She'd be great." And they were right. Morgana May. She spends most of her time in uh, San Francisco, but does spend time here in New York City, and uh, managed to get a hold of her while she was here. And it was so much fun. And I, I think it'll be evident uh, as you listen. Enjoy. So this is like the fifth time, fifth or sixth time, where there's been, I've had a, an Ivy League educated person. <laughs> now, I went to, I don't want to make you feel intimidated. Oh God, are we going to fight? Are we going to start this interview off like this? I went to, uh, in a semester and a half, <laughs> at a very small Midwestern school, mm-hmm. very exclusive, exclusive in that no one lives around there. <laughs> Uh, so I hope you don't feel intimidated at all. But I'm going to breathe through it. I thought you, for a second there, I thought you were going to say you were a Dartmouth man, and then then it was all going to go down horribly. So, this is not kinky. Maybe it is kinky. I don't know. There's a lot of among Ivy League schools. There's a lot of competition. What I've never understood what the yeah I, I, I fake it. I honestly I think that. There was a moment at Brown where I realized we had a football team, but it was like a genuine surprise. Like I saw the team walking across the quad or like a member or something. And, right. and so, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I never followed college sports. And um, I, I definitely felt like Brown was a bit of like the bastard of the Ivies and well, certainly even, very politically active. So not like even, not even just sports wise, but is it I'm smarter than you type of thing? Is that what I it can't is? throw down with it. It's, you know, I often like when I'll say, um, where'd you go to school? I went to college in Rhode Island. And then, and folks will often lead with the, did you go? to RISD, and, and I'm, that's just the best thing you could hope for, right? Right. Um, that gets... How would they know? Would you just say, yeah? Yeah, right. That's it. You just not go, hmm, yeah. Yeah, no, the other one. <laughs> the old blue and gray or <laughs> right? whatever, right? you know, you yeah. can just make it up. So I hope you don't feel intimidated. I'm, I'm going to try to, like, not, yeah, not not take on the, the, the quivering in front of them. Because clearly, you had to go to that much school. I didn't have to. I was like, that was... I kept going after Brown, too. Like, really, I went as far as I could go. I think I, I sometimes toy with this idea that I think at some point, I guess, I have to go back and get my MD, because that's all that's left. There is a... Good. Yeah. There's a huge co- co- uh, connection between uh, really smart people and kink, though. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I have, for sure. I'm sure you've thought of this. Yeah. Uh, do you know what... I mean, it's, I don't know, it's, there's, I think there's like a, a kind of correlation issue there, but I, I definitely know that kinky people who are either academics or researchers or intellectuals in some way, you know, we love to talk about our kink and we love to dissect our kink and kind of get into the etiology of our kink. So there's definitely like a tight Venn diagram and, um... You know, I mean, I, I find that also to be true in LGBT communities. So I, I do think there's something about the process of introspection or having to unpack one set of identity um, politics or identity formations that lends itself to looking at all the other stuff. It's it's nice for me to see how, I mean, like Yale's got a BDSM club yeah. now. Harvard's got a BDSM club as well. And one of them had it first. And I'm not going to get into that because I, I don't know. And then I'll get hate mail. Um, but it is, you know, I think about being in... 
I mean, my undergrad in, you know, like the early 90s. And, you know, we were certainly pervy, but... Um, yeah, we did not have access to, you know, kind of university-sanctioned space. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I think about, like, this generation and what they've got in terms of... I mean, first of all, there's the, inter- there's the internet. Yeah. So there was no internet. We would have to take these field trips, um, you know, to other states, frankly, because, you know, Rhode Island, with, like, I think the largest Catholic majority per capita in the United States, really? was just not a space. And it was I was not going to find the nipple clamps I needed right. in Rhode Island. So it was, you know, off to Massachusetts. Um but, you know, when I think about just the accessibility and the fact that you can look at all these things online and order all of these things and, yeah. and the, just the, the access of information is really pretty amazing. You can be kinky and completely and educate yourself and do everything online. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. I think has an upside and a downside. I mean, I think it also creates maybe greater social isolation. Mm-hmm. You can do even more in a vacuum. Yeah. And, um, and that's always a problem. I find, you know, as both a player and as an educator and as someone who plays professionally, when someone's had so much of their formation happen in that kind of vacuum, uh, it creates a one-sidedness to the way fantasies get manifest yeah. that when you then have to enact them relationally can be really challenging for folks. Well, also, too, speaking as, as a, a guy who first explored his submission online because, I yeah. was again, I was in the Midwest, Yeah, you start to think, oh, this is how dominant women want me to act mm. based on a chat room or, uh, you know, okay, you always have to capitalize the why or, <laughs> which is fine. Oh, Some God, people I prefer that, right? I can't do it. Right. But, but you know, <laughs> this is, this is how you assume. And if you're, if your only exposure is based on porn sure. and, and what you read and erotica then you start to imagine, well, I have to do, this is what I have to do in order to attract someone in real life. So you go to an event and you, then you realize that's not exactly the best way to do it, right? Some people, it, it does work out well. But it was a huge shock to my system when I came to New York and I was approached a dominant woman and I realized, oh, they want to be, you know, treated like, you know, a human being. That was a huge shock to me because that's not what my exposure was online, right? And individuals even, right? I mean, I do think that there's something about a common denominator that happens online where there's a an almost forced narrative where there's, particularly for newer for folks, the sense of, well, this is, this is the narrative. This is what it looks like to submit. Yeah. And so then because of a restricted amount or maybe a restricted band of how things are expressed, folks click to that narrative yeah. and then they, yes, yeah, start you know, capitalizing the why and, and doing, doing these things that are a little um, stereotypic yeah. that you, what you lose in that is um, the individuality yeah. and that in all good DNS, it's really a relational dynamic that has like some meta themes, but at the end of the day, it's about like these two individuals or three or four, you know, depending on how you break that down um, and how you, how you interconnect. And this is, of course, me speaking as a highly relational player. So, you know, what I don't do in, like, any of my play is a lot of this... I mean, like, I'm, I'm not a very good projective surface. Um, I talk a lot. <laughs> like, I, I have a big personality. I tell people what I think. I lead with that, right? Like, I, mean, I know you were talking about having looked at the website. and yeah. um, I don't do a kind of neutral canvas upon which a person can project their fantasy and mm-hmm. enact it. Like, anyone who gets with me is going to have to, like get with me like yeah. there, there's going to be some sort of dynamic there and I definitely know many submissives and dominants for whom that kind of projective relationship is the ideal and oh. and that's great that's just it's just not it's outside of my personal scope of experience so I'm doing it as a form of protection mm-hmm. you know protecting themselves so that you know they, they don't want to have the, their true selves out there sure. for one, one reason or another and others because it's easier for them to be someone else 
Sure. You know, um, you said I'm a highly relational player. Mm. That's a, that's a new one. But you, you mean by that you mean it's so individualized. Yeah. Because of who you are and who the other person is. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, is that something that you? have always been or is, is it something you kind of arrived at? No, I feel like that was probably my entry point into kink and into SM. Like what's always been really provocative and interesting to me about kink is what the dominance and submission is all about, what the power exchange or the pain exchange is about, what the what the fetish exchange is about, and that any person that I'm playing with is going to bring something incredibly unique to that. Um and I guess you, this is, I mean, I often say, like, the thing that I, the things I get off on in SM are being trustworthy and being someone's first time yeah. or being the person that can, you know, kind of shepherd someone through an experience. And those are really interconnected, right? Like, that's really about kind of getting to know a person, getting to know what their insecurities or vulnerabilities are, finding out what, which of those insecurities and vulnerabilities are going to be cathartic to exploit and which need to be protected. And, and kept safe, right? So that's all. You have to know a person a bit to be able to do that. You said uh, you really get off on being a person's first time. There's some people who... I know some people who are like, I definitely don't want to be someone's first time. Yeah. Because you, you have no idea. They have no idea how they're going to react to something, right? right? Totally. And, and, and so you're sort of playing with a powder keg in something. Absolutely. Right? And it's a, I mean, I get that. I absolutely respect people that are not interested in being someone's first time. I happen to love it. Because um, selfishly, narcissistically, it's nice to know that I can set someone's bar really high. Mm -hmm. I like knowing that, like, I'm going to be the person's first contact, and then they're going to go out in the world, right? Like, I'm gonna, I'm doing this. I'm incredibly modest, and then they're going to go out in the world, and uh, and I'm going to have created like a benchmark for them. You, like, you this is what play should ruin them feel for like, everyone else. After basically, right. um, and you know, like, I, I enjoy that. Sure, but then yeah, there's a um, there's a patience. It's a different thing you're getting out of taking someone on that journey for the first time, there will be possibly as much or more that doesn't work than does. Mm -hmm. And it's about being able to frame the things that don't work. It's about being able to kind of teach and show a person through play what they're good at and what they love and what they can't handle. And helping folks make that uh, fantasy to reality jump. Because in fantasy, all kinds of things feel great. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you actually, you know, get those needles in the skin and, and, and take that from the, the kind of I'm on the Internet, like, you know, masturbating in my room right. to I'm with another person and this stuff's actually happening. Yeah. The, you know, on a base physical level, that stuff feels different. And so it's nice to be able to know, OK, these are the things that I fantasize about and I want to do. And these are the things I fantasize about and I want to talk about while I'm doing something else. I, I imagine, though, there's got to be and maybe you have some stories to back this up, but I imagine for a lot of people, their first time, and they have a specific fantasy about something, maybe it's something that they've just obsessed over. Mm. One specific thing. Who knows what it is? They want to be hit in the face with a rubber chicken or whatever. <laughs> Heard and, it. And then, I'm sure you have. <laughs> and then when it actually happens, and if it's not as hot as they thought it would be, mm -hmm. is that a huge disappointment when that happens? Or is that a... I mean, I can't imagine what the reaction would be, especially if it's someone who didn't start off earlier in their life exploring it if it's something who's maybe later in their life explored it that's got to be a is that a is that a tough thing to see? Well, sure, it is. And and I think that this kind of gets to the context of how you do a scene for the first time, which is to say there's actually a lot of work that goes on before and after your actual play. Mm -hmm. So when I'm 
playing with folks who've never played before, there's always this like conversation or series of conversations that are about like setting up the expectations and kind of having that like educative moment of, so this is what it's like to have fantasies. This is what it's like to enact them, to be prepared for the fact that things might not feel the way that you've imagined that they'll Mm -hmm. feel and to have some contingencies in place so that when that happens, you've got a place to go. Mm -hmm. Um, I think where a lot of folks get into trouble is that the fantasy is that, you know, there's no negotiation. Yeah. Um, for many folks, the fantasy is that there's no consent. Yeah. And and that what they really want is for this thing to just sort of like magically happen without having to communicate it. And it's the hottest thing on earth in part because it's coerced and you've had no say in it. And, and you know, that is an excellent masturbatory fantasy. Yeah. And then my job in working with folks who want to enact that physically is... Um, to make the process of negotiation a little sexy, to, you know, gently get folks into finding ways of being able to express their kink, to prepare them for the fact that the things they want might not be the same as the things they fantasize about. Um, I also think, you know, not all fantasies are meant to be enacted, and that's really good and okay. Yeah. Sometimes I, f- I feel like there's a pressure to have to do the things a person fantasizes about, and there's all manners of stuff that's really hot to just talk about, or to look at the porn about, or to, you know, ruminate on your own about. How do you negotiate without, like, like you said, negotiate in a sexy way? How, yeah. how does that happen? Because I don't... Oh, it's been so well since I negotiated, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's just uh, my, the limited experience I've had with negotiating one-on-one with person. Yeah. Uh, via email, there's some, for some reason, that with the mystery with the email, it's a lot mm-hmm. easier to be sexy with something. But when you're sitting down with someone and talking it through, in my experience, it's always been sort of, it's almost like you're doing their taxes with someone, yeah. right? <laughs> how, do you, how do you cross that... Barry, because I'm sure there's a lot of people who have that same problem. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, when I'm working with couples on this issue, um, it's I like to you, know, you try to get out of the box. You try to get creative. I do think that writing things down is great for most folks. Like it does tend to be the thing that gets you out of that kind of clinical space yeah. and makes you less self-conscious. Um, and I do feel like there's a way you can bring a little power exchange to those as well. So tops can give assignments yeah. and the assignments can be sexy and kind of commanding in nature. Um, you know, I give a basic four part question to everybody that I'm playing with. That's really about a bullet pointed list. And because I'm telling a person to do it and they have to do it in writing, it has a sort of schoolwork assignment quality to it. Right. Which is the, you know, I want to know about the things that you know, you like, um, have never tried, but think you like, uh, absolutely know you don't like, and that are in a, maybe you don't like them. Maybe you don't like, I just want parameters. I want, you know, the person to take responsibility for drawing the box or the container that we're going to play. Um, I've worked with couples before that have done that through role play and a series of sexy notes back and forth, um, which I find, you know, really fabulous. You can find ways of tucking boundaries and limits and specific requests into role played letters or role played emails like that. Um, and, you know, the the buy-in is that both parties have to be willing to listen for them. Yeah. Um, so I, I worked with a couple years ago that um, it was a, a novice female dom, which is very often the case um, in couples that I'm working with, where it's a kind of submissive male who's got a lot of solo experience, a lot of online experience, and then he really wants his girlfriend or his wife to be able to play. And if she's amenable to it, then they'll come to me and I can kind of help train them up. Yeah. Uh, and so she, you know, was lacking the kind of confidence and dominant entitlement to really make the scene happen. And 
um, we co-created some letters for her submissive partner about the scene that she was going to play. And they actually got a hotel room for the night and started the scene in the hotel room bar, which I thought was, you know, also great because it's like, by all means, get out of your house, get out of the place where you raise your kids and, you know, empty the dishwasher and all of the kind of things that keep you really grounded in your daily life. And um, her letters to him had all of the things she wanted and didn't want tucked in to them. So it was, um, you know, that, that she wanted him to be, you know, in the bar at seven o'clock, um, that she, um, knew that he had discomfort in male underclothing and was going to grant him permission to be wearing entirely ladies lingerie underneath his business suit. Um, right. So that's a really kind of cheeky way of like letting him know she wanted him cross-dressed under his clothes, but you know, in that kind of like compassionate, I'm doing this for you. And and it was really sweet all the aspects of the scene were tucked into this letter in that way. Um, you know, that I understand that you um, are not in a position to be taking any heavy pain for me, but that you'll um, have a certain number of, you know, lengths of rope or these cuffs that we bought together at good vibrations yeah. in your briefcase. Um, and uh, I, you know, I won't expect to hear mercy ma'am from you at any time. Um but we'll know that if I do hear that, um, it will be because you have thoroughly exhausted yourself in the effort to please me. Right, so, right, you know, right, kind sure. of gave him the safe word in there as well. So, you know, there's there's ways. You said something earlier. You said when you were in college, you took a field trip to get nipple clamps. I did. And that was your base. I, I was I, like I said, I read your website. That was okay. your first toy that you you bought. Was that my first toy? Yeah, that was my first SM toy that I bought. How did that come about? I mean, and how did how did a field trip to I know, right? Well, because I was not alone in my kinkiness at uh, at Brown in 1990. Well, did, and, I, yeah. I, I, I want to make sure we start at the at the beginning. How did you? Meet other people that you. Oh, I know you're kinky too. Right. Well, I had the benefit of um, of being queer. So part of how I met other folks was that I was. And then, remember, this is 1990. So I came out into a really specific culture of um, essentially AIDS activism, where being out was an inherently political act for me. Yeah. Um, and being a woman in particular meant that um, kind of year to year, the, like I was in the Women's Caucus of ACT UP, and we were consistently the ones that were around. Like we were the ones who had longevity. We were the ones who weren't dying every mm-hmm. three months. Mm. Um, so I came out into this highly politicized culture, and I think I was very connected to gay men's culture, in part because that's where the sex was. Um, like the, the gay women's community were sort of like, and this is horrible, and like all the lesbians are going to write to and be very upset with me but honestly there was processing and like cats and 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 back rubs and I could not get these women to put out but the women I could get to put out were like the bisexual sex workers who were in act up and they were all like the pariahs in the in the dyke community like lesbians wouldn't have anything to do with them the separatists didn't like them and I was like yeah these women are great in bed <laughs> these are the women and and so even though like I never had a boyfriend I never had sex with a man and I was you know this kind of gold star lesbian all the like lesbian separatists just wanted to recruit me. I just wanted to hang out with the like punk, femme, bisexual, sex working girls, and you know, kind of by default, they were pretty kinky. Mm-hmm. And so I was in all of these highly politicized queer groups at um, 
in Rhode Island, not even at Brown. These were like, you know, this was being political on, on the East Coast. So I was actually in New York quite a lot at that time as sure. well. Um, and I think because of the nature of the AIDS epidemic, sex was something everyone was talking about all the time. And I do think there was a resurgence of SM that happened in the 80s and early 90s as a response to HIV, as a means of being able to be um, explicitly sexually connected in a fashion that was low risk or yeah. lower risk. Um, and so my whole kind of culture of coming out was infused with a lot of talk about leather. And there were these tremendous sex wars happening in the 1980s and that kind of spilled into the early 90s as well, in which feminists were having these tremendous debates about pornography and SM. And it was really the rise of third wave feminism and the second wave feminists, the sort of Andrea Dworkins and Catherine McKinnons were all talking about how prostitution was paid rape and porn was inherently bad for women. And I was like, you know, hanging out with these women who were modeling for on our backs mm. and were stripping at the Lusty Lady uh, in San Francisco on their summer breaks home from Brown, and we're the Lusty Lady. Oh yeah. All right. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, sorry. I'm going to do a side note. It's a unionized peep show in San Francisco. That's amazing. So you know, this is like talk about like sex you know, workers of the world unite. Oh uh, yeah. Um, and and so that was the milieu in which I I was um, I came out and I was learning about my own sexuality, um, and you know I guess tangentially justify my love came out at that time as well right so like God bless Madonna there was like this moment and it was like in 1990 where suddenly it was totally fine to be kinky particularly if it was in black and white yeah. because right. it was just like it was really in the popular culture, um, and so within that setting this group of folks who I am still in contact this day with, many of whom live in San Francisco, um, were going to pile into, um, I'm sure it was someone's sob, right? <laughs> Just paint a picture of your, of your New England Ivy League education and someone's sob that, you know, someone's daddy bought them. And we all piled into this car and drove to Waltham, Massachusetts, where there was this store called Vernon's, which was a cross-dressing emporium that had in the back a sort of glass case, singular, that had you know, some cock rings and some nipple clamps. And there was probably like some dildos and things like that. Um, and, and it was the only place, it was the closest place that you could go, short of like catching the train to New York. Yeah. Um, and so we were going to go to the sex shop. And, and I think that the idea was that we were taking this field trip to the sex shop, honestly. Um, but as soon as I got there... Like, I was not terribly interested in the in the sexy things. I was really drawn to the cross-dressing things. I had no one to do any of that with. But, like, definitely the size 14 heels, like, caught my eye right. pretty quick. But then, yeah, the nipple clamps were, you know, my inner magpie just <laughs> busted out. Like, this shiny, <laughs> shiny silver case full of things. And I wore those off the um, epaulet of my motorcycle jacket, which I would um, put various sort of sex positive or queer rights slogans on in metallic stencil letters. So That's pretty badass. Like, I was really badass. Right. And you know, I was um I was young. I skipped a couple grades, so I was a young freshman in college Look as at that. well. Right? Like it, this is I was jailbait. Like I was <laughs> I was like baby dyke jailbait, which, you know, every other woman on campus also agreed with. Um, and the gay boys would come running up to me and like attach themselves, these nipple clamps, through their shirts and like follow me around. And, and there was this, and I was like, well, there it is. That's my sexuality. I don't know what this is called, right, right. but whatever this is, this is what my sexuality is. And clearly it, it, it stuck with you. Yeah, absolutely. 
It was, but it was very organic. And I'd like to think that there's probably a lot of folks for whom that would be fun and pleasant and kinky and kind of get you off. Like, I, I don't think I have like a particularly rare sexuality. Yeah. Um, I do think that I was really blessed to come out at the time I did. Five years earlier, I would have missed all of that. So how did it go from, okay, I bought these nipple clamps to practicing it in real life? Or was it just always there? Well, you know, here's the interesting thing. So I moved to San Francisco, um, which, you know, I think the joke is that you, like, leave Brown and you get the one-way ticket to San Francisco. Because there is this just, like, huge influx of folks from Brown to San Francisco or New York. Like, right. those are your choices. Um, and I have family on the West Coast, so I went to be closer to them. Moved to San Francisco and was invited to a Lynx party at the 14th Street space. I'm dropping all these things for your West, for your left coast uh, listeners who will appreciate the, the things I'm talking about. Um, so it's 1993 at this point, 93, 94, and I'm in San Francisco and I'm going with some girl to uh, this SM party at this dungeon space, community dungeon space. So this is definitely my first time in a dungeon. Like there have been lots of parties with like, you know, duct tape and rope and candle wax, you know. Yeah. Um, but... Um, this is the first time I've actually stepped foot into a dungeon and I walk in, you know, pretty cocksure, pretty like, I do this. Like, this is like, that, that, by all means, let's go. And there was literally someone hanging from meat hooks just inside the door. And then there was another scene going on that had like the fire batons and I backed out of the room slowly. I was just <laughs> like, okay, I thought I was kinky. I thought I was into SM, but clearly this thing I thought I was into is not you. Like, you keep using this word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and so I, I back out of the room, and it was like a good like year, year and a half before I even like stepped back toward it again. Um, in part because I just really felt like, okay, that's too much. And I was living at the time in this big communal house with all these like crazy SM dykes who would throw play parties. Um, and, you know, like I would come home from work. I had like a kind of corporate job in publishing at the time. And I would come home from work and my room would be like, covered in hefty bags that had been duct taped to the floor and the walls and folks are like oh yeah this is gonna be the water sports room and I'm like the hell it is <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so I would see all these also like crazy scenes and I say crazy in the sense that there was like a lot of bloodletting and knife play and piercing and again all of that I was just sort of like ah oh, this is this is too much for me. Like this, this looks violent and it's kind of scary. You went from from first gear to uh, you know 18th right right know, it was right. too much for me too fast um and and so I, I kind of retreated and then s sort of came back around simultaneously through spanking organizations. So through mutual friends who are involved with Shadow Lane, which is this you know kind of wonderful traditional domestic discipline group that's mm -hmm. just about spanking and spanking fetishism. Oh, wow. And those parties, you know, at the time there were a lot of like parties that were happening in L.A. or in Palm Springs. And so, uh, and they would take over this hotel and it would just be all these people taking over this hotel spanking. It was like the swinger equivalent of, you know, spanking fetishism, which was completely delightful. Um, and then a woman who I was kind of casually seeing at the time was working at a house of bondage and discipline in Oakland, uh, California. And I, um was, you know, in one of those kind of positions where I needed to, like, f find a, a supplemental income. And she's like, well, you're kinky. You like SM. So you should, you should like, do some SM professionally. Um, and I interviewed at a few different houses and, and actually ended up at a wonderful place called The Shadows, which um, is no longer around. 
but they were the first and only house to actually make me interview for the job and not just offer me something right there yeah. then. And this was the thing at that point that I was really interested in was actually being apprenticed and trained and, and doing something kind of old guard where um, I started off as a professional submissive. I went through like all of the ropes that one goes through to, you know, kind of get a craft. And, um, and so it was really beautiful that in many ways my professional work was the thing that allowed me to really deepen my lifestyle play. Um, and and then those two things kind of have run a parallel course ever since. And I, I've, I've heard people who've, who've done both, who've they've, they've gone to the house that just... Do you have a pulse? All right, you're hired. <laughs> right, you have boobs? Right. And, Here's right. your room. <laughs> and then the, I've heard, talked to people who did the exact opposite. Uh, and, you know, in, in many situations, the people who go to the the former it's it's like trial by fire and like okay that after i left that place after six months and then i found a good place to right, right um and it sounds like that was that sort of exactly what you were looking for yeah. right well and it was an amazing um i mean my kind of graduating class of the shadows and again many of us are, are still very connected um but it was um i mean the, the two folks that i think of the most mistress kira and mistress josephine who are who remain really close friends of mine um you know there was a just a, a sororal quality to being in this shared space with incredibly smart women, almost all of whom were um, finishing a degree or in graduate school. Yeah. So there was also like a lot of us there that were, you know, kind of hyper intellectual yeah. and really kinky and playing constantly. So, you know, like this is the great fantasy that I think that people have that they're going to call the house of B&D and that everybody's just sitting around like, you know, playing with each other's nipples and tying each other up. Right. But that was actually what was happening. And, and we would have these moments of just being like, yeah, this is we're having like kind of the best time right. like right now. Um, and so I, I also, I think it was the, probably the first time in my life I had really connected relationships with groups of women, um, because a lot of my, um, working queer community up until then had been focused around the needs of men. It had been focused around, um, HIV and AIDS activism mm -hmm. and, um, and the needs of gay male community. So it was, it was really special in a lot of ways. So, uh, I, I imagine because a lot of the friends who, who do work at the the former place, the place that just gives you a you know a job if you have a pulse, and God bless them. Like yeah, I, sure, I have sure. nothing against it that. Has, it has its there's a place, place for everybody. Whatever, yeah. Definitely. Uh, they have a lot of stories of like I couldn't, believe, you know, their first <laughs> scene was something that they'd never done before, and it was just a horrible experience. Mm. And it's something they laugh about now, laughing cringe about now. Mm. Um, whereas I imagine you probably have fewer of those. Maybe you still have a few shocking stories, but they're they're mostly. No one put you in, in that position no. unless you were ready for it type yeah. of thing. No, I did the best SM at the Shadows. Like, it's really, like... And, you know, I was, I was young. I've been playing... This this spring, actually, is 18 years mm. that I've been playing professionally. Um, and when I think about the, the kind of SM that I got exposed to and that I got to do, and then because I didn't do a, a formal apprenticeship... Um, with a single person, like I apprentice folks now, I went into community and would just sort of look for the folks who were doing the thing that I love the most mm -hmm. and then ask them to train me up uh, and offer a trade or, or work something out. So I was able to go to the rope guru who I just thought had like the best rope yeah. and, and they trained me up and I was able to go to whom I wanted to teach me how to single tail and who I wanted to teach me how to flog. And, and it was really rich because I got to see so many different styles of play and everybody around me was really connected and we're and we're in BDSM or DNS relationships 
outside of their play. Like, it was an inherently lifestyle group of folks. And again, this was the mid-90s at this point, which in San Francisco I think of as really being, like, you know, kind of mecca for yeah. kink. Like, it was a really... I mean, we, we all kind of, in our rocking chairs, talk now about, <laughs> you know, the good old days. But it was a spectacular time for, for leather and kink in San Francisco. I'm curious about what it was like when there were probably fewer preconceived notions, maybe, or maybe, mm. or, or, or maybe less access to uh, fantasy, or is it? I wonder. You know, it's such a good question, and part of the difficulty I would have in answering it is that I've changed, right? Because, um, you know, like I would say, most notably, like ten years ago, I I bought a house and I set up a space, mm-hmm. and I love my space. I'm very like you know proud of of my dungeon and it immediately created where I wanted to play publicly. So I suddenly stopped going out so much because Mm -hmm. when you have like a really gorgeous 1400 square foot dungeon at your access, like that's where you do your scenes and you invite people to come to you. So I don't, I feel like I definitely stepped out of um, the public play. And I think, you know, I think it's kind of natural to age through that as well. Like in my in my 20s and um, in my early 30s, there was a lot I, I got and needed out of the scene. And then I probably started playing more with like the established group that I had relationships with around the time that the internet became yeah. really significant. What I, I will say is that um, teaching in community changed, like the, the, the students that I was teaching changed, where they were much more informed, and I think overall for better, um, that they had more access, mm-hmm. and that they got younger in a really promising and great way, in a way that was about um, having access to things without having to wait your entire life to do it. We were talking off mic about, um, I, I mentioned stereotypical dominant women in media, and mm-hmm. how, and I said how in a lot of movies and TV shows or something like that, they'll use the word worm. <laughs> yeah. And you went, ah, oh, that's a running joke for I 18 am, years, you said. It is. I have such a worm story. Well, because when I first started playing professionally, you know, I was sort of straddling this, like, you know, non-kinky world, kinky world. Like, I still had friends that weren't in SM community, and, and I would be kind of open about what I did. And I, I was at this cocktail party, um, and this very earnest, well-meaning girl, when she learned what I did... Um, just looked at me with like all this like amusement and and concern in her eyes and said, wow. So do you just like say the word worm every day? (laughs) Like, do you just, do you just call people worm all the time? And, and I'm like, I've never called someone worm. Like it's just, it's so not a part, but it's, you know, that is what people think that, you know, you're just, but I'm sure there, I I know people who think that because that's their only exposed, that's all they're exposed to. Right. Yeah. Which is, again, that narrow bo- band of what porn might show us. And I'm extremely pro-porn. I'm extremely pro, right. you know, like, explicit sexual material. Um, but, you know, any any over-reliance on any one thing is going to leave you a little off-balance. You mentioned uh, a little bit off-mic when we were talking about well, I was getting more uh, hot water ready. Special yes. recipe, by the way. <laughs> and you, You're very good at it. We were, we were saying, I don't, don't want to brag. We were talking about... Uh, Kink.com, and we were also talking about uh, sex workers, mm. and you t- said that you're were, you were really involved in improving the working conditions of sex workers. Well, it's, I think I've gone through periods, um, and certainly again, like in the late 90s and early aughts, mm-hmm. um, I was very involved in sex worker um, activism, 
Um, I organized the sex workers contingent for the Dyke March and did a lot of work with SWAP um, and the St. James Infirmary in San Francisco. And and for me, it's a labor rights issue. So I think it, it stems out of my broader kind of labor politics, which is that I feel like all people deserve humane working conditions. Uh, and, and so I, I think we get into this pickle with sex work where there's this need to be cheerleading. Like everyone says sex work is bad and demeaning. So if you're, you know, pro sex work or at least not of that attitude, then you have to be like, no, it's great. And just feel that way across the board when, you know, what's important for me is to be able to say, you know, working conditions are, are terribly important. And so if you are a tremendously large and successful porn studio and you're treating your workers poorly, you should be able to be called out for treating workers poorly without being made to shut your doors. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's, for me, the thing is I, I'd, I'd like us to be able to hold that nuance of being able to fiercely advocate for the existence of a thing while also fiercely advocating for it to maintain a sort of ethic and standard in community and to be constantly striving to improve itself. But that that's... One of the big problems, because because varying degrees of sex work are illegal in yeah. this country, um, some people don't want to talk about it because they don't want people to lose their jobs, but yeah. they do want them to have better jobs, yeah. right? Or, you know, the, the, the real problem with criminalization is that it creates such vulnerability to police harassment. And, you know, I am this, at this point, you know upper-class white lady. So the police are not an issue for me. I don't engage in illegal activities. If for some reason I were to be... Um, the target of some sort of police attention, I would lawyer up and, um, you know, be fully capable of doing all the things that I would need sure. to do to assert my legal rights. Um, but the tremendous majority of folks that engage in any kind of erotic labor are doing so... Um, not as a full-time career, not as a long-term career, but in a kind of moonlighting capacity, paycheck to paycheck, supporting kids, and, you know, are considerably more vulnerable to police harassment, and particularly undocumented women, women of color, transgender women are extremely vulnerable mm. to um, police brutality and harassment and um, chronic criminalization and incarceration and the and the vicious cycle that that turns into. Um, and so, you know, there's a tremendous amount of privilege from the position that I'm operating in that I feel like it's important to be able to consistently vocalize and support organizations that are doing work in those more, more marginalized and more vulnerable communities. Um, well, that, yeah. you, you, almost every few months, and, and I'm not even looking for it, I'm sure you probably see these stories more often than I do because you're probably more aware of them. Mm. There was a story just recently of a guy who uh, found a woman on Craigslist or something like that, paid her to give him a blow job, and then afterwards yeah. he arrested her. Yeah. And his police, the, the chief of police said, well, that's, you know, almost like, that's that's Joey or, you know, something with, right. or whatever, right? Yeah. And... They're like, well, how else are you going to find out? Or something like that. It just seemed like, Jesus, this is just... Well, and it's part of a broader social conservatism around sex and the sort of interesting neoconservative moment that we're in, I think, that's uh, maybe part backlash and, and part just the sort of cycle of how these things work. Um, and you see it, I mean, I see it a lot in the um, legislation that happens around anti-trafficking laws, which are um, extremely well-meaning, yeah. but almost always universally have the effect of further criminalizing women who are um, doing sex work as a job um, and are you know not in fact this 
sort of enslaved group that gets I, what to me is um, extremely uh, you know kind of tantalizing media presentations. I mean, the whole trafficking issue for me is something that sells newspapers yeah. and that you put on Dateline. Because um, the idea, the idea that the the politicians are coming from is that there's no way a woman would do this of her right. own free will. Right. And and the blanket legislation, the, the highly paternalistic yet well-meaning legislation that comes out of anti-trafficking laws hurts women across the board, hurts men across the board um, who are involved in um, any kind of erotic labor. Mm-hmm. And 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 so. Yeah, there's just there's this way in which IQs just drop sharply when sex comes uh, into play, and it's and it's frustrating for me, and it's maybe part of our puritanical heritage, um, but it's it is the one area where we consistently get it wrong in this country, and well, it, and it's you know one of the biggest re- uh, Churchill said uh, biggest argument against democracy is five democracy is five <laughs> minutes conversation with the average voter, yeah. right? Yeah. My other favorite one he said was uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others or something like that. But it's because if one politician came out, uh, one politician came out and said anything that sounded pro-sex work at all, his opponent the next election cycle would totally obliterate him with it, right? Right, right. And there's no no way. The only way I can imagine... No, I was going to say, unless you had a really... uh, like if Hillary came out and said something, then maybe they. Oh couldn't. my God, she'd be she'd never work again, right? But I mean, I think especially for women because there's such a double standard. Like Hillary right. has to ball up so much right. to be taken seriously, and the degree of sexism that was in the media around her presidential campaign was, you know, not in any way surprising yet staggering. Yeah. But, you know, like Australia hasn't sunk into the ocean. No. Like we've got many excellent examples of, you know, perfectly functioning governments that have decriminalized sex work and, and, you know, no one's burst into flames yet. I think it it comes down to, I mean, the same reason why we're seeing uh, marijuana legalization. Yeah. It's governments have to go kicking and screaming to the tax money. Yeah. And like when they can't, they just can't afford not to anymore. Yeah. That's when it's going to come down to it probably. Yeah. I, I think this is probably one of those areas where it just... Elizabeth Warren has a few things she's got to work through. Mm. She's got a few things on, on her plate beforehand. You don't not a fan? Oh, I'm such a fan. I'm, I'm making... This is my... Okay, so my here's my dream. I, I want this uh, Clinton-Warren ticket in, in 2016. Yeah. I want eight solid years of that, and then I want eight more years of Elizabeth Warren. And then I can die in the like happy socialist utopia you know, here, that I would like to live in. At first, I was going to say... <laughs> I was going to say Warren for president. Because while I like Hillary... Uh, I'm a huge, bigger fan of Warren. Oh yeah, absolutely. But you're just, right. This would, this would be 16. 16 you're right. That would be 16 yeah. years. And and I think I think she's more electable. Um, I think Clinton is more electable. Sadly, probably. Um, well, really, you think so? Than Warren in the next in the next election. I mean, unless we're unless we're ready to be that progressive, I'd love it. Like I, I, I'm like sign me up. I, I mean, none of them are progressive enough for me. Like I am, I'm a bit of a fire breathing radical. I mean, like you know, like I'm. I, I would go toe to toe with. Uh, we could. You want to do some sort of test to see who's more liberal? <laughs> well, I don't even identify as liberal. I, I liberal I identify as progressive. I, well, the, the, progressive is just a word that they've used because people the word liberal got so. Well, no, because liberal isn't left enough. For you, you see, I always, I always think today when someone says progressive, it's because they don't want to use the word liberal because it's been so, it's been so demonized. Right. No, I don't use liberal because it's too centric. Really? You think so? Yeah. Well, yeah. So I actually have an email that someone sent. Actually, this is, so you and I were working on planning this interview like a week ago, right? A week yeah. and a half or something like that. Three days ago. So this is after 
this was set in stone. I got this email because I, I opened up the opened up the floor from the listeners. Hey, who do you want me to interview? Nice. Someone said, uh, I'm about five years late. This is, again, after the fact. Okay. I'm about five years late, but I just read uh, Mistress Morgana's uh, An Open Letter to the Bush Administration <laughs> and The Best Sex Writing of 2009. From that and her website, it seems like she'd be an interesting guest. Nice. To which I said, Done. Perfect timing. Yeah. You know like, what? For you, you do it. Right. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to... I Googled it. Yeah. Uh, but the they're so good at protecting what you have to buy the book. I didn't uh, have time to order it. What was in an open letter to the Bush administration? So I... Um, in the weeks following the, um, the Abu Ghraib sort of scandal, mm-hmm. uh, I experienced you know, a, a, a multiple series of emotions. Um, and then also some really interesting sort of fallout at work. So we had this you know, period of weeks and months that went into like a year in which torture was on the cover of every magazine. And, um, and I found myself in this interesting self-respective, self-reflective space where it seemed that the American government was doing in a tremendously like, you know, legitimized way, something that was genuinely harmful and Mm non-consensual and that I was doing in an incredibly illegitimized way, something that was incredibly cathartic and consensual Mm -hmm. and that there was a tremendous hypocrisy to this. And also everybody canceled their sessions the week that the Abu Ghraib story broke. Um, And particularly the sessions that had to do with things like electrical play or interrogation or, um, you know, immobilizing bondage uh, or hoods. And, and, And the images were really, you know, they were shocking and they were shocking because of this like overlap, right? Where there were just undeniable aspects of BDSM imagery in these images of torture that were coming out of Iraq. Um, And so, because I think I often um, turn to things like satire as... Uh, you know, the, the, the sort of satire is better than anger yeah. for me, both in terms of expression and in terms of what I like to read. Um, I was contemplating writing this article, and then my good friend Stephen Elliott was editing a book on sex writing. It was politically inspired, I think, was the book. Um, it was politically inspired or Sex for America. I wrote for both. I mean, it was probably Sex for America. And he asked if I would be interested in contributing something. And I was like, yeah, actually, I've been wanting to do this open letter to the Bush administration, um, basically complaining that they were um, interfering with private enterprise. And if they were really so pro-private enterprise and small business, why were they, you know, stepping on my game? Right. Uh, and, and so that was the, the gist of the piece. Um, and it was actually, like, really well received. And it made me, it was very satisfying to be able to write it as well. Using their own argument against them. Absolutely. And and it was interesting actually to do the research and actually kind of figure out like, well, what is the Bush administration's policy on small business? And, right. <laughs> and you know, and how much money are we spending in Iraq? And like, you know, what's, what does it mean? But, it, but also speaking a bit to the way in which it made a certain group of the folks that I work with feel um, guilty and bad about their play. And I actually got the feedback. It just doesn't feel right to be into this stuff right now. Did you stop using words like torture? I've never used words like torture. Um, I use... What do I use? I guess I've occasionally talked about nipple torture. I'm much more likely to talk about nipple torment. I'm very picky with my language. Uh, and I think language has a lot of power. So I don't use slave terminology in my play, and I never have. Um, I have too much of an appreciation for U.S. history. It's just not a thing I'm going to be able to flip around in some sort of casual way. Sure. And given the predominant like whiteness of the SM communities that I'm usually playing in, it seems particularly... Um, 
absent of uh, the kind of thoughtfulness that I need around it. So I'll use language of service. Um, and I've got a little note about that on my website. So it's always interesting to me. I can always tell who's read the website. I've read who, that part. Yeah. You know, who introduces themselves as slave Bob yeah, yeah. and who introduces themselves as Bob, who's interested in an experience of submission. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it's a hard thing to avoid, too, because there's so many there's so many words, like you said, nipple torture, right? Yeah. There's so many things that are just part of the vernacular that are just, yeah. that's what yeah, they that's are, it. right? Yeah. CBT, yeah. you know, do you say cock and well torment? You know, or- we should look at my website and see. I, I definitely use CBT and I will prefer torment over torture. Um, and that's, I think, very much grounded in the fact that torture is a reality of modern life. Sure. And, um... Again, it's something that defies being able to casually eroticize it. If we lived in a different kind of world, absolutely. Um, and those are, you know, those are, those are, they kind of are ways in which my kink reflects my personal ethic, mm-hmm. which is, again, part of this way in which our kink is really individualized. And the other thing, too, is when, when I hear um, torment versus torture. So when I hear word torture, immediately my brain goes, well, it's obviously not really, yeah. you know. One would hope that's where you're and right. So, right, right, so, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with slavery or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and because it's so obviously not, then somehow it's more eroticized that way. Because it's it's using a word that's clearly not that. So when you say torment, I'm like, God, that sounds scarier now. Uh-huh. You know, it's like... <laughs> See, I think torment has this wonderful kind of seductive edge to it. Sure. Because, you know, you can torment a person in all manners of ways. Right. Um, but I think it also, politics aside, kind of reflects my style. Um where, you know, we talked about the kind of, you know, the, the, the worm mistress, the, the kind of unitary dominatrix who's, like, really cold and cruel and mean. And yeah. it's just not ever been how I've connected. Like, I think mommy is the core of where all of my dominance comes from. Really? And when I'm in the leather dungeon or when I'm in the kind of domestic-themed spaces or doing things of a more domestic nature, like, mommy is definitely at the core of it for me. So... And that's a very nurturing space, right? Sure. You also do, uh, you do adult baby, is it called adult baby? Adult babies, adult diaper baby lovers, play. infantilism, diaper dominance. I saw this on your website and, you know, that's some, uh, not a subject that we've talked about very much. We've had someone on who is, identifies as an adult baby and mm-hmm. he's got his own podcast on the subject. How did this come about for you and how did you realize, oh, this is something I enjoy doing? It's that's- a, yeah, it's a great question. And you know, so what's interesting is overwhelmingly my babies are mostly men, some, occasionally women, but mostly men who will describe having the fetish, the fantasy from a very young age. And these really beautiful kind of touching stories of being 12, 13 years old and ordering diapers through the mail or trying to fashion diapers out of towels and, and create in solo play the sensations that go along with it. Um, and that, that that fantasy and that erotic need persisted through adulthood. And it's an incredibly specific fetish. And it's an incredibly taboo fetish. And so it's not one of all the things I think in kink. I feel like diapering is the one that is the least likely to just, you know, you spring it on a girlfriend and she's like, yeah, honey, those giant plastic Roomba panties sound like a great idea. I'd love to put you in those. And maybe you'd like to wet yourself while you're at it. Right. right? Like it's, it's just incredibly specific. So I didn't come to diapering in the way that most of the people that I diaper came to it. It was not this thing that I've thought about. Um, I'd never thought about it until uh, um, one of my guests brought 
the the sort of fantasy to my attention. Mm-hmm. And it was someone who played with a number of my colleagues and asked if I was interested in meeting. And I asked him to describe the fetish and the interest. And, um, and through getting to play with him and getting to really appreciate the kind of tones and textures, it became my fetish. So it's this great argument for how I think we can have proclivities that are really organic and come from a really old place. Mm -hmm. And then we can have things that we learn to love and that we learn to love as passionately as we might love something that we've felt since our, you know, nascent pubescent sexuality. And a lot of times it depends on how it's introduced to us in what context it's introduced us, right? If if we've never thought of it before, but then in our adulthood, we were exposed to it in a certain way, then it can be a completely different reaction, right? Um, so what is a dominant? What do you what do you get? Uh, I, I, this is a situation where I wish I had a specific fetish. I really can't say I do, and so because of that, I don't have anything. I can't say, oh well, this is just like how cheese graters are for me. You know, I don't right, have a specific right, right, thing. Right. So as a dominant, what is it for you? Or do you not identify as a dominant while you're doing it? Oh, absolutely, okay. I do. Yeah, and this is one of the places where like that mommy identification really kind of comes into play. Yeah. So I get several things out of it. Um, on a on a purely sensation level, the the tactile quality of adult baby play is wonderful. So there's fetishistic gear involved with adult baby play and adult diapering that's um, completely unique to this style of play. So there's a difference between enthusiasts of cloth diapers, which are these you know kind of magnificent, fluffy flannel and cotton, big white you know diapers that you put on with pins. There's a ritual to the way that the bottom is prepared and the diaper is put on and then plastic pants are layered over them. And then there are folks that are more enthusiastic about uh, disposable diapers, which are much crinklier. Um, and again, there's a kind of ritual in terms of the preparation. Uh, the sights and smells and sounds are, are all huge. So baby powder, baby oil, um, you know, the kind of shaving or smoothing down of the skin before that whole ritual starts. The way the diapers feel as you're tugging them on. I'm putting a diaper on someone is not dissimilar to bondage um and there's an incredible rush that I get as a dominant when I'm leaning over someone with a diaper pin in my teeth. And, you know, getting a diaper on someone snugly is, um, it's, you know, there's something very specific to it. You need to do it with confidence. It's something that happens in a very, you know, sort of meticulous but uh, effective and efficient fashion. Yeah. And then I've got this, you know, huge wardrobe of onesies and bonnets. And you know, most of my... Um, my infantilism wardrobe is on, also incorporates some sort of gender manipulation. So it's a sort of sissification fantasy as well. Lots of pink things with ungodly amounts of ruffles. Uh, and, and at the heart of all of this is... Um, and there's so many different avenues to the fantasy, but it, it can be age regression, which is about really letting yourself escape down into um, a, a pre-verbal state in which you're utterly dependent on someone. Mm-hmm. And it can be about the kind of erotic embarrassment of diaper dominance, which is being an adult person, usually an adult man, who is... Um, determined to be incontinent or determined to be incapable of his own actions and is put in diapers as a means of dominance and subjugation. Uh, And then, you know, there are the folks who, you know, just kind of genuinely love the way that everything kind of feels on its own. There are the folks that want to be someone's, uh, be mommy's, you know, pretty little sissy girl because they're just not cutting it as the husband or as the teenage son. Um, And that if they want to be close, this is the way it's going to be. Right. Uh, There's a whole cuckolding fantasy that goes really beautifully with adult baby as well. 
Okay, you're gonna have to explain this one. Uh, so the 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 sort of scenario around that that I really love playing is the adult husband who's not meeting sexual needs and is not you know performing in the way that an adult should. And so if he wants to maintain his closeness, the he's gonna have to accept this particular role. And the role is doesn't get to sleep on adult sheets, doesn't get to sleep in the bed, has to be put into kind of like a crib-like setting, and is going to be swaddled and diapered with a pacifier in his mouth and will be kept in the nursery while his, you know, wife, now mommy, uh, is getting her needs met in the adjacent room. Right. Uh, so, you know, those those kinds of scenarios, I think, touch on the stuff that's really common to, to DNS, but has, you know, unlike instead of the body bag, it's, it's plastic pants. It's another form of being... Um, you know, kind of encapsulated in gear that reminds you of your predicament. Yeah. And if you think about it, the experience of being in diapers, the experience of being an infant is something that all humans share and that none of us have access to in yeah. memory. Yeah. Right? So infantile amnesia kicks in around like three yeah. and none of us know what that experience is about. Um and so getting to reinvent that as an adult and all the taboo, like it is the one thing you're simply not supposed to do. Well, I mean, that and incest, right? Yeah. Like you talk about like the really set in stone. Like, I don't think that the Bible was, you know, I, I don't think that there was like an anticipation right. that humans were going to be putting each other in diapers. Otherwise, it would have certainly been included in, yes. the, in the Old Testament, right? right. Like that you, you don't lie down with your sister and you don't put your husband in diapers. Right. And, and we would have just known right there, like it, it couldn't be more taboo if it were in the Old Testament. And and that's part of, again, what's really amazing about playing with it. And the, the way you were describing it, too, because you you mentioned earlier one of the first things you were drawn to at that store were the size 14 mm. women's shoes. It sounds to me, and I could be completely wrong about this, but some of the things that carry over in adult baby can also be carried over for cross-dressing. Definitely. Without just the... The context is different, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. As mean, far as the humiliation is could be one thing, and uh, the other thing could be... Yeah, and I often think of it more as erotic embarrassment because, of course, my stance during it, and everybody's different, but but for me, it's it's about how pleasing it is to see someone dressed up, mm -hmm. and and possibly how foolish or how you wouldn't want anyone to see you in it. You wouldn't want the neighbors to catch you. But it comes out of this incredibly loving, playful, slightly seductive space. And then, of course, I genuinely love the way it looks. Like I, I love the way a giant onesie looks, and it's true that I um I am a huge gender manipulation enthusiast and a huge cross-dressing enthusiast. So what, explain, explain that, because again, that's something I don't understand. I haven't had been able to talk to someone really about it. Yeah. Um, well, gender the, manipulation enthusiast. Enthusiast, right? That's, 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 <laughs> that's going to be my business card. That sounds um, like the title of the magazine. Well, and it's, yeah, it's different, again, different for everybody. Yeah. So I can describe like my kind of entry point to mm -hmm. it. And maybe this is my sales pitch for women who have... Um, boyfriends or husbands or partners that are interested in cross-dressing and they're sort of like, huh? Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't have traditional sexual feelings for men, but I adore men's submissive energy. Um, it is a, it is the thing that I find particularly beautiful and useful, um, about, about men. <laughs> and I say that in a really valuing way. <laughs> Right. Um, it is the one thing. No, you said it is a thing. But no, maybe no, it's the, the thing. thing. It's, it's the yeah. Thing. No, that's. I mean, that's where like like that's where a guy's going to be useful right. to me. Is is like in that in that stance, and the and my, I mean, my earliest sexual 
interest. Like, you know, because you can be queer. It doesn't mean you're, you know, incapable of feeling attraction. Hmm. I definitely was, like, hot for boys when I was younger. But this was also the era of sort of glam metal. So the only men I was ever, like, oh, that's hot, were, you know, like, the members of Poison. Were these, like, guys that were, like, yeah, wearing way more makeup than I was. Right, right. And, you know, had longer, much prettier hair. And were, you know, definitely embodying, you know, like, jewelry and, and were... You know, femming it up. So there's something about, for me particularly, well, there's a couple different kinds. Really manly men who are hyper-masculine in their presentation and who do not get transformed but are simply going to be put in panties and heels and, a stock, and stockings. And the, the fact that they are male is still going to really shine through the dress. That's incredibly hot for me. Um, and it's submissive and it's an act that, you know, is clearly being done for me. Mm-hmm. But then I also love full transformation and that, that thing that you can do where you really help coax a person's body into appearing, um, socially feminine is, is really a gift. And I have some amazing girls that I get to play with who I know can see that part of them inside and who I experience as being on the trans feminine spectrum where it's truly a a part of themselves that they cherish and love and need the space to be able to authenticate and express. Mm -hmm. And that you, and that I get to then sit down and, you know, make up and uh, create cleavage and put in really beautiful clothes and, and style hair and, um, and then go through, you know, possibly the mechanisms of BDSM from like that femme sub space, which mm. is really unique. It's a, it's a, you know, qualitatively different space than, than boy sub space. Uh- how, I mean, how do you, I mean, maybe, maybe it's something you can easily tell when talking to someone about it as far as what are they looking for if they, if they have that aspect of themselves that mm. where they actually need to have their, their feminine side out as opposed mm. to it's not, not a source of humiliation, but it's something that they're only doing for you. Right. Or quote unquote under duress type of thing like forced right forced yeah forced. I love forced feminization it's my favorite um, just in terms of like I really because you seem pretty eager to get in those right, panties right. to me it's like forced buy I've right. had so many people email like you gotta have someone talk about forced buy like it's not it's, okay like you're awfully erect for this being something that's forced but like whatever you need to tell right. yourself sure um, I mean you you just said it that's how it comes across. So they, like, it's pretty easy to tell. Yeah. I mean, people will use exactly the words that you just used. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that's how I see it. I, you know, I, um, it's funny. My personal boy will often try to tell me that the cross-dressing is something that is only for me. Mm-hmm. Um, which I find, you know, incredibly charming yeah. because a, he has a suitcase of lingerie that had clearly come from women before me. Right. So this is something that like predates me by a lot. I am by no means the first person to put him in panties. I suspect I will not be the last. Yeah. Um, but then also, you know, there's like a lot of pride in the outfits and I like tend to, you know, get kind of elaborate outfits yeah. and they're like favorites. And again, like the forced element doesn't feel like it's there. <clears throat> and I, I do feel like if I, you know, like if, if, if I were like, okay, honey, no, no slips for a month, um, that he'd be, you know, he'd be sad about that. <laughs> so I know that the forced thing is something that's it, enticing and I will play along with that. But in, you know, you both have to know that there's, there's nothing forced about this. So I, I'm, this is, this is one area where I wish I really can't understand humiliation and doing air quotes again. Yeah. I really can't. For me, humiliation is like. I know such a huge turn off for me. Yeah. Like, and, and there are certain, and it's, it has, I mean, sod is obviously one example, but in the past I've had people who wanted to do some sort of humiliation, and I've had to say, look, we could do that, 
Yeah. I won't be able to get an erection for you for at least 10 months afterwards. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll be so turned off yeah. by you yeah. and by, you know, that, and I feel really bad about that because I know there are certain types of play, because for me, submission is like being coveted and being desired yeah. for my masculinity and for, you know, you know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and, and controlled because I'm so desirable as I am. Right. 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 And, Oh, there's so many times I wish, like, oh, I really wish, like, I know Saad really wishes I was into cuckolding, right? (laughs) I really wish I was too. I really wish I could do that, right? But for me, cuckolding would be step one, cuckold, step two, jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, you know? Right, right. So, and I just really, so when I'm having these conversations, whenever there's but humiliation involved, I'm like, oh, God, I wish I, I really wish I had that. You know, I think listen to the part of you that knows you can't do it and respect that. Like, I, I think that it is so important for those of us who are kinky to love our kink and to love our boundaries. Yeah. And, and I share your feelings about humiliation, actually. Like, the thing that would be most commonly called degradation, again, very overdetermined language, but the thing that I think falls in the middle of the bell curve of what degradation is, is a turnoff for me. It would not make me feel good about myself. Mm-hmm. It is not a thing I would want to do in play. Um, erotic embarrassment is kind of playful and it's loving and there's nothing sharp around the edges. And so I can play with that much more fluently. Um, and then occasionally I will find a workaround that is partner specific. Um, and so again, like with my boy, I will occasionally, we have a, a kind of running theme about him being a pig that surprise me as much as anyone else where I was just like, you know, and it kind of, it, it fringes on worm territory, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but it's so pleasant to do while it's happening that I'm like, Oh, okay. I can, I can absolutely step into this. And a part of it's because the trust is there and because I know he knows I love him and that absolutely nothing bad yeah. is going to come about this, that I don't actually think poorly of him. In fact, I think incredibly highly of him. Yeah. And so that's, we, there's enough trust there. Yeah that I can go into that kind of a verbal space. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if it's not a place... like, I've, So sometimes I think there's a workaround. Sometimes it's like, all right, if this is a thing your partner really, really, really wants and it's totally on your off zone, can you realign a little bit? Yeah. Like, is there a side door? Is there a window that you weren't aware of? But then also to just, like, know that it's okay to not be into a thing, to listen to that voice, because it's probably right. Where is it at? There's something on your on your website. Oh yes, here you go. So you 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 work with couples. I do. And um, this was very telling. This sentence on your website here. Uh, the only requirement for heterosexual couples <laughs> is that the female. Do you want to finish it? No, or no, go. <laughs> female partner speak with me personally to arrange the session. There's clearly a story here. Yeah. Is this because uh, people are just calling you to for wank off material, or because? The guy will call, and it's clearly he's has he's maybe he hasn't even talked to his wife yet. It's both, right? Yeah, it's both. It's it's. I found before I required that means of getting in touch with me that it was pretty evenly divided. Men who would write these elaborate fantasies about clearly make believe partners that they wanted to have come mm-hmm. in for these couples training sessions that were masturbatory in nature, and there are other venues. You know, their chat rooms for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had more than one couple come in where it was clear that the woman did not even know where she was going. Oh, wow. That they showed up on the doorstep and that it was like, surprise, honey, this is our date. And, you know, and those scenes don't happen. Yeah. Like, that's a moment where it's like, okay, so what we're going to do instead is have a conversation about healthy ways of communicating the things you're interested in to your partner. Yeah. Uh, How and do you handle that when you clear- clearly... 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's challenging on a few levels. Um, one, because it's very frustrating for me, who, you know, I only have so much time in the week, and so yeah. I want to make sure that my time is going to the folks who are trying to get on my schedule and really are maximizing the time. But then, two, then I'm trying to take care of a couple of folks in the room. I'm trying to take care of this poor woman who's probably in a bit of shock because suddenly she's in a dungeon, which is not something she anticipated yeah. on doing with her Thursday night. And I'm trying to, you know, offer education to her partner without shaming him. And it's- and the partner's thinking probably to himself, here you go, you're the salesperson. Yeah, right. You go ahead and sell it to her. Yeah. And she, and meanwhile, you're probably thinking, I'm so sorry. I'm so, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, okay, this isn't going to work. Yeah. And so I'm going to share with you why this particular tactic doesn't work. Yeah. And offer you some suggestions of things that might work. And then let you leave. Yeah. So that you can think about what it is that you would like to maybe come back with. And when women call me, it's also very interesting. And I always like to talk to both members. And, you know, couples is a very kind of monogamous um, way of putting things. Because mm-hmm. I, I definitely work with triads and quads and folks that are in, you know, sort of different couple, different coupling. You even say requirement for heterosexual couples is... Yeah. And it's because it's really specific to heterosexual couples. So I've, um, I rarely work with gay men. I think, you know, probably for kind of obvious reasons. Um, you know, just in, in the sense that I'm, I'm just not the target audience. Right. (laughs) Um, and I work a lot with, uh, with queer women and I work a lot with queer identified couples in which there's a trans partner and I do not have the same kind of um, issue there in terms of that initial contact Um, but with all of those sort of instructional scenarios I'm speaking with every person in partnership in the in the relationship before they come in the front door yeah Uh, and everybody does their own little writing assignment for me and because you want to you know that really in a lot of ways the chief amount of work that I'm doing with folks is helping them get on the same page and, and helping them get on the same team. Yeah. Because this is the problem that, that folks in partnerships and relationships have with kink often is that there's this sense of we are at opposition with each other. We want different things. And the strength in partnership is that you're on the same team together. Yeah. And so even if what you want is different, if you go at it like a team, if you go at it like, okay, this is a thing that we're doing together, you can build intimacy even in trying to navigate the things that seem, you know, incredibly incompatible. And then, like you said, there's pr- probably there is something that connects them together. Well, obviously the fact that they're already living together or yeah. whatever. Have you ever had, have you ever had the opposite happen where the, the guy has no clue that this is going to happen and uh, now, no. damn it. See, it's, it's a good a, fantasy. It is. My wife brings me to the dungeon. I think we're going to sushi. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what? Um, there's there's totally like a graphic novel, <laughs> or right. like somebody's writing that fanfic right now. Right, <laughs> like, there sure. it is. You've just you planted this some guy good story. is writing that. Some guy. Right. That is exactly what's happening. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it? it... I mean, I think that there are um, differences in expressed sexuality between. Um, men and women, and I'm going to use these kind of gender overdeterminant terms, but I'm going to link them to hormones, mm-hmm. um, right? So testosteronized people um, often experience um, a more projective sexuality. They're more comfortable in, um, sexual, uh, in, in sexual expression that can be highly visually based and isn't, is a-relational and estrogenized people tend to um, express intimacy in more relational ways. Um, and that's, that's, you know, kind of my general experience. Yeah. Um, it's, it, you know, my, my sample size is pretty significant. 
Uh, and so, you know, I, women, it's funny, for the longest time I had a sort of sliding scale for women who came to see me and about a third of the folks that I work with are women. And I had to stop doing it because I spend on average two to three times more time setting up uh, sessions with my female clients. Why is that? Um, because no woman has ever called me and said, what I really want you to do is blindfold me, gag me, hog tie me, and beat the crap out of me, and no matter what I say, don't stop. I've had tons of men right. who I've never met say, I just want to come in. I just want you to kick me in the balls as hard as I can, as hard as you can. And I don't want a safe word. So what is it? What, what do you hear from women? Um, what I hear from women is I want to make sure I'm safe. I want to make sure that this is a space where you understand what I am coming to you for. I want to, you know, that, that women carry a vulnerability in the world yeah. that is much more pervasive, much more day to day. And we care, we care about our safety well, because said- our safety is, you know. Right. Okay. So when you said you said uh, a lot of setup beforehand, I thought you meant I have to get the trapeze and the the pigeons or the doves or you know. Right. I thought no, no. I can only go to Yankee Candle so many times. That's great. Yeah. No. Same number of props, but the the negotiation is is considerably more. Sorry. The setup in terms of communicating back and forth and making sure that we're on the same page Uh, and the cool down, like the you know, there's a like the my my joke about. Women in processing is not that much of a joke that I often um, find the need, and and it's something I very much enjoy doing, to be available to talk with the women that I work with before, during, and after in a way that I do not get the same kind of requests from, from men as frequently. I'm I'm curious also, so you, you mentioned that you, uh, guys have the, uh, their submission is the I don't know how did you put it is, is the thing that's interesting to the them. About that, me. Right, right. <laughs> so when you're them. when you're playing with a woman, is there? Um, I have a friend who's a photographer, mm. and um, I have several friends who are photographers. One friend is is sort of on the bi scale. I've never asked her this question, but I'm curious. And I have another friend who she's uh, lesbian, mm-hmm. uh, and she says she takes better photographs of men. Than of women because she's always thinking about sex when she's taking a photograph of a woman, right? I'm curious for you. You just described me in yoga class, by the way. <laughs> for you, are you are you more easily distracted when you're playing with a woman, or take yourself out of like, okay, I've got a. I've got I've got something I, I'm here for rather than oogling or you right, know what I'm saying. Right, right. It's no, um, it, but there is a difference. Um, it is easier for me, or it's more natural or more appealing for me to be um, more sadistic with men. And I do not have the same sadistic urges about women. Women are not as interesting to me to hurt. And I think a part of that has to do with, again, like the kind of cultural capital of masculinity versus femininity, where um, I experience women. With women, I am often working to bolster that sense of strength and capability and beauty and submission. And with men, I'm often trying to knock them down a peg or two and get them in touch with what it's like to be used and to be there for someone else's pleasure and to not be the center of the room. Women, it's all about like your submission is going to fill this space. And men, it's about your submission is going to fit in my pocket. It's it's funny because... (laughs) But it's not that I... It's that there's more to take. Men have a different kind of cultural power that is more fun to to take. And yeah. women do not have the same cultural capital. I don't feel it in the yeah. room. Um, and particularly in submission, I'm often much more in touch with the, with the pre-existing vulnerability mm. that women come into the room with. And so 
further exploiting that vulnerability is not nearly as interesting. The, I would say the really sadistic thing that I often do with women is make them stand in front of me naked and, you know, force them to find acceptance and love of their body mm-hmm. through body issues and self-esteem issues, right? Um, it's um, always amazing to me how routinely my female clients are uncomfortable with the fact that I'm going to have them be naked. And they're all surprised. They're often very surprised. Like, I have to be naked for this? I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you have to be naked for this. No man has ever been like, oh, my God, I have to be naked? Because, you know, men are just like, like great, I'm here. When do I take my pants off? Yeah, right? Just wait. Wait yeah. to take yeah, your yeah, pants yeah. off. But it's, but it's beautiful. And, and that, to me, is part of what's great about DNS is that, like, different submissives have different things to offer. Yeah. And there's something intrinsically valuable about both like I I love my male submissives I don't disregard them Um, and I value all submission terribly Um, I would be a very cranky woman if it weren't for submissives in the world like they are they are a necessary and beautiful component of my life so they're like the the ways in which I can use men have nothing to do with devaluing um, but they do have to do with there being something different there for me to use Mm -hmm. and than um, what women often have to offer. And, and I would suggest that there's other experiences of marginalization that um, have similar parallels for me, where there's um, people who experience marginalization or vulnerability in the world um, that further exploiting marginalization or vulnerability is simply uninteresting to me. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it grates against my own social justice politics and it's not sexy. Uh, and there's a whole nother sort of sexiness around that, which is, you know, inversion is what's sexy. So, you know, what's hot is always taking the thing and, and then sort of manipulating its opposite. Well, I have a whole, like, three or four pages of other notes here that we haven't gotten to yet. Would you be willing to come back and... Absolutely. I know you're saying you're, you, now you're mostly in San Francisco, but sometimes you're in New York as well. I have been cultivating. I've been attempting to cultivate the bicoastal lifestyle. So last year I made this goal for myself to be in New York every sort of six to eight weeks, and I absolutely maintain that. And so I have been able, it's really every couple, couple, three months, I'm, I'm in New York. I love the play I get to do when I'm in New York. I love the city. Well, that was one thing that we, we definitely have to talk about when you come back is you, you talk about the different types of play you do in different locations. Yeah. And that's on the top of my list for the question when you come back. Thank you so much for doing this. I hope you didn't have to talk down too much to my level. I, I got to follow along to most of what you said. I'm going to have to ask Saad to listen to it and kind of translate it. Like, did, is that, did she insult me there? I can't, I can't tell. Um, but uh, two things. I hope you're willing to come back again. Absolutely. Um, like another six to eight weeks when you come back again? Yeah, right. And then two, when you come back, maybe after, either before or after, we can start working on our uh, Elizabeth Warren campaign posters. Yeah, that sounds great. That would be very good. I love it. Okay, it's a plan. Thanks, Morgana. You can find her uh, online on her website. Uh, well, you can find all her details, her Twitter, everything. Go to massacast.com and then click on her episode and you'll see all, all the info right there. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you later. Bye-bye. Don't care for
for high tone places leave.